from the book of 1 Samuel. We are back to our Old Testament narrative again where we're seeing that God is seeking a man after his own heart. And the narrative of 1 Samuel 13 and 14 go together. We're only going to read the first part of 13 as our text. And at the very beginning, the very first verse, there are blanks in the manuscripts. And I'm going to read it as though it was blank. Hear now the word of the Lord. Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in two years over Israel. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Then I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. He said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of your Lord, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went to Gilgal. And the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You remember where we left off before Advent when we were looking at this passage? 
in 1 Samuel. We're looking at the life of Samuel and his ministry. And then Samuel concedes to the will of the people in demanding a king. And so he brought forth for them Saul, the son of Tish, a Benjamite, a man that stood head and shoulders above all the others and who was attractive in every way. We saw at the first that Saul was a little reluctant to be named king, but the process of casting lots moved him into the center position and he was appointed by the people to be the king. He was the people's choice. Saul now is the king. Some things that happened to Saul, detecting that perhaps he was not really up to the job, both God and the prophet. Samuel had done everything that would be expected to equip Saul for this serious office. Can you imagine the title of king of Israel? Israel, Jacob, God's chosen people, 12 tribes delivered by God from Egypt's bondage, preserved by the Lord for 40 years in the wilderness, taken by the Lord into the land of Canaan and given residence there and victory there for several centuries. What a great history, what a great nation, what a great place to be on the throne as the king of Israel. As I mentioned, Saul had been prepared by the Lord and by Samuel for everything you could imagine he would need. He had been anointed by Samuel. He had been confirmed by three extraordinary signs in one day that confirmed him as God's choice. He had been given the Spirit of God. Remember the scripture says the Spirit rushed upon him and he began to prophesy and was numbered with the prophets. The Bible even says that the Lord turned him into another man. It says, in addition to that, it may be parallel to it, and the Lord gave him another heart. And he had been proclaimed to be the king by the people's affirmation and approbation in which they shouted, long live the king. What else did Saul need? Not only that, Samuel, who had been leading God's people and been a de facto king for a whole generation, a long generation, stepped aside. We saw it in a couple of weeks before the Advent season, the particulars of the farewell address by Samuel to the people. He was going to continue to be active as a prophet and a priest. But he was not the king and he was not going to pretend to be. He had graciously acquiesced and given Saul the full reign and the full authority, the full liberty to be the king. The only thing that Samuel had commanded him back in chapter 10, verse 8, and it's referred to here in our passage, he, says, he told him to go to Gilgal and to wait seven days. And Samuel said, then I will show up and I will tell you what to do. That's the Lord's command. 
He probably didn't realize at the time, and most of the time we don't realize that when it happens to us, either do we. We're being tested. This is our hour of testing. Now, the Lord does not tempt anyone to sin. That is, entice them and move them and put them in a place where they are given to sin because of the Lord's motivation. God does not tempt to sin, but God does test. God does test his people. And he's looking for true faith and true obedience, and he will test every one of his people. If you don't believe me, ask Adam. Ask Job. Ask Abraham. Ask Moses. Ask Joshua. So the notion that God would put his new king to the test is not unusual. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that the man that eventually becomes the true king of Israel goes through the worst test, the most severe test of them all. And that is the testing of Christ in his humanity on the earth from the very day of his birth to the moment of his death, Christ was under constant test to see whether he could stand up, whether he could remain holy, whether he could keep the commandments of God and see whether he had all of the attributes necessary to be the savior and the bearer of our sins. God tests his men and women. He puts them to the test. I stand before you here as someone who has woefully failed the test of God in my own life. And I'm here to tell you God is long-suffering, merciful, patient, forbearing, and He will give us every opportunity in the world to respond to His loving call and to His favor and to his grace and mercy. And even when the Lord chastens, it's a, it's a light chastening. We see this even in the case of Saul. This is Saul's test. This is the time when Saul is supposed to stand. This is the time that he's to assume the scepter and command God's people and lead them. And we'll never know. We'll never know where that kingdom could have led them. The text says in the lips of Samuel that if Saul had stood the test and had been faithful and obedient and submissive to God and obeyed the command of God, that he would have had a dynasty. He would have had an eternal throne. He would have been a throne that lived there forever. Hmm. Similar to the test God gave Adam. A test of obedience. Are you going to follow and obey the sheer, mere word of God? No matter what the circumstances around you are. That's the essence of the test. And it's a real test. And it's a true test. And it's a tough test. And many of us have failed. But are you going to believe the command of God regardless of the circumstance around you? Are going to walk according to the light of God's Word, are you going to lean on your own understanding? Are you going to read your own circumstances and make your decisions 
based on what's around you. Now, let me tell you the circumstances poor, poor old Saul faced here. And we'll see a man who, who really just had difficulty with the whole thing. First of all, he was commanded to go to Gilgal. And the best we can un understand and interpret the time, it was about a year from the time he was declared to be the king and received the commandment of God. It was about a year before he got to this moment here where he brought the people there where God wanted him to be at Gilgal. You remember it was at Gilgal, they had the great renewal ceremony. We talked about that a few weeks back about the great repentance and the great revival and how they turned to God and how God saved them with the, uh, with the unusual circumstance of that event. Well, they're back to that place. But it took a year to get there. And there's a little hint in the text that, John, that uh, Saul would have never really taken up an army to fight the Philistines who were the abiding enemies of God's people except for the encouragement and eventually the initiative of his son, Jonathan. Saul had a son, Jonathan, and we'll hear a little more about him as we go through our narrative this winter and spring. But now there was a godly man, an upright man, a good man, a brave man. There's a man that was godly in so many ways and was falling following God's will and behaving in a way all the way through to the very end. You'll see a man that loved the Lord and that obeyed the commandments of God, an upright man. It's a shame he never got to wear the crown. But his father had blown it. And your father blew it too. And your father before him and your father before him and Adam blew the opportunity. So Jonathan was in that circumstance where he was supporting his father, loving his father, aiding his father. But yet he would never wear the crown. He would never be the crown prince of Israel. The dynasty of Benjamin would not be the dynasty. Now here's the circumstances. Jonathan, taking initiative on his own, took a group of men and attacked the most forward garrison of the Philistine army. And they, they wiped them out. <laughs> but all that did was just infuriate the Philistines. And the Philistines then began to gather an army up against Saul. And Saul saw what he's up against. Saul's first inclination was to use a standing army. He wanted a small group of highly trained professionals to fight the fight. Here's your first hint right there. Saul's going to do things according to the wisdom of man, the counsel of man, and the strength of the arm. In fact, when the militia came, that is the citizen army, he dismissed them, sent them back to their homes. He stayed with his experts. The tyranny of the expert. The people that knew how to do it. I'm reminded when people say that the Ark was built by amateurs, the Titanic by professionals. That's what you have here. But then it got so bad, he looked out and saw the amassed army of the Philistines, and the numbers here are staggeringly large. In fact, some say even if you reduced them by 90%, it would still be a large army that the Philistines brought forth. 
And Saul began to tremble. He began to be afraid. So then he put out a call to get the militia back. He wanted to bring his, his people back. And so he announced through the trumpet blast, the bleating of the shofar, the, the trumpet that was that which heralded things in Israel. And he told them through that trumpet blast that he had won a great victory already against the Philistines. Of course, it was Jonathan's victory, but of course it was subsumed under the leadership of Saul. And he made it, it's interesting language he used, that, that he's used here when he talks about it. He, he said, uh, uh, let the Hebrews hear. It's the word Shema. It's that same word that's used, hear, O Israel. The Lord is one. He wanted God's people <clears throat> to hear. Faith comes by hearing. He wanted to engender in them what they needed to motivate them to, to battle. And they did motivate them to gather. But then when they looked at what the Philistines had mustered, the men of Israel saw they were in trouble. And it's interesting to me that there's a listing of all the places the people hid. Caves, holes, rocks, tombs, cisterns. Some of them even crossed the, the Jordan River and went over on the other side. And yet Saul stayed at Gilgal, and it says, and all the people followed him trembling. The stench of fear. With good reason. They were outmanned, outnumbered. They were going to have a difficult time. For the Philistines had chariots. In the scriptures, there's a subtle thing when you study biblical warfare. Foot soldiers are considered men that fight defensive wars. They fall back into forts and they and, and into garrisons and they defend and they work on foot in the mountains and the hills. They are defensive men, the infantry. But the chariots, the cavalry, are mounted and they are offensive. God discouraged Israel to have chariots. God did not want Israel to be offensive and aggressive, but to be defensive, to pull back and defend what God had given them and to obey God. That may be just a subtle distinction, but we see it here. It was the chariots that were the strength of the Philistines. And Saul saw that it was the lack of chariots that was the weakness of Israel. Now the commandment had come from Samuel for Saul to wait Seven days, a Sabbath. Wait seven days was the commandment. And Samuel said, I will join you there at that rallying point. Wait seven days. There's the test. Are you going to wait on the Lord? Are you going to obey God's commandment? 
Are you going to not proceed until you receive a word from the Lord? Wait for the prophet to show up. And this was Samuel's sad day. Day five and day six, things were worse than they had been. And on the seventh day, on the day of resting in the Lord, Saul took up the cause and took up the effort into his own hands. Don't miss that. God had given them victory after victory after victory and he was going to give it. Maybe he should have pulled out the old scroll of Joshua and read about what happened at Jericho in seven days. But he didn't. And that's where most of us fail as we give up. We don't wait that last day. We don't give God that opportunity. We don't make it through the Sabbath. We don't make it through the day of rest. We want to save ourselves. We want to ensure our own eternal life and our own spiritual condition. We want to guarantee our own survival. And that's why it's a test. It's, it's the hardest thing in the world. David, King David would have to say, wait, my soul, wait on the Lord. Sit down, my soul. Back off, my soul. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Because they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what it takes to make it through the Christian life, isn't it? But it starts with waiting on the Lord and obeying his command. And then Saul did a few things that he should not have done immediately. One is he picked up the cause and since he was on his way into battle, he thought, wait a minute, we had better make a sacrifice. Because he had been trained. He knew you never went into battle without offering to the Lord getting the favor of the Lord, the direction of the Lord, whatever you can find. It was just like back in the other day, you remember when the people carried the ark with them into battle, thinking that the ark had some magical power to save them. Saul was never short on religiosity. He was never short on churchanity. He was never short on doing things spiritual. He was just short on faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, poor Saul <laughs> rushed ahead. And then he did something he shouldn't have done again. He made the sacrifice. The scripture says he offered the burnt offerings. He had no business touching the holy things that belonged to the priesthood. And I'm sure there were priests in their midst, but regardless of what, Saul made the sacrifice. Later on, we'll see Saul is interested in sacrifice, being kind of the covering for his disobedience and his lack of faith. And I'm telling you, that's the story of modern Christianity. Church, spirituality, religion is our cover for not really trusting God at the deepest level, isn't it? Haven't we all done that? 
And as soon as he committed his sin, just like God walking into the garden and saying to Adam, where are you? Old Samuel walked into the camp and said, what have you done? And Saul had his excuse. He always has an excuse. He'll have one later on. His, his story is that, that um, well, uh, you were late and I didn't know what else to do and the people were beginning to desert me. They were scattering and you hadn't come in the days appointed and the seventh day was not complete, by the way. The Philistines were mustering and I didn't know what in the world I needed to do except I needed the favor of God to go into battle. He'd already made up his mind he was going to go into battle. He said, so I forced myself. I went against what I thought would maybe the right thing. I had to make myself do this. It took a lot of initiative. It took, it took a lot of gumption. But I forced myself and I did this. And here's the sad verdict. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. It's not going to happen. Now your kingdom will not continue. Jonathan will not be your heir. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. No dynasty. No reward. Just loss. And the saddest verse is, and Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. God's prophet left the scene. When people are determined to go their own way and have their own way and not wait on God and not listen to God and not believe Him and not serve Him, at some point, the Lord says, my spirit will not always strive with men. At some point, the prophet, the Word of God, departs and there's a famine in the land a famine of the word of God and there's no word of God around to aggravate and to keep on talking about sin and repentance and restoration and salvation because the prophet is left the prophet's gone there's nobody else here to preach the gospel but the gospel's already been preached and is preached in this one little phrase the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. God has someone else. Now we know an immediate fulfillment of this, as we'll see in the coming days, is David. Young shepherd boy, David. But ultimately and finally, it's not David, but it's David's greater son. David had a great son, Solomon. But a greater than Solomon is here, Jesus said. It's the greater son, Jesus Christ, who is the man after God's own heart that will take on the test and pass, who will assume the leadership of God's people, who will become the savior of God's people. It is Jesus. And that's the unfolding of redemption. All that we'll learn about King David in the weeks to come. We want to always look 
through David to Christ. Christ is that ultimate Savior. He's that one that ultimately passes the test. And it's interesting, there's two poles in the gospel. One is the theme of death and dying and suffering and loss and defeat. And that's found in the sufferings of Christ and in his death and his burial. Then there is the theme of being raised up and crowned with glory and honor and enthroned at the right hand of God and being ever victorious and returning to his people, to save his people, to vindicate his people, to receive his people unto himself. And that's who Christ is. You notice that under King Saul, the people never had a sense of peace. They were afraid. They were tentative. They were a vassile and a servile people. In fact, it was so pathetic that in this period of time, which is the early Iron Age, the blacksmiths were all Philistine. They never taught the trade to the Israelites or to the other nations because they wanted them to be costly dependent. And the scripture says later on in this chapter that the Israelites had to go to the Philistines to get their plowshares sharpened and the scythes and the sickles and everything that they used. They had to get it sharpened, even their spears and their swords. So how do you think they're going to fare when the Philistines control the means of warfare. They were helpless. The Bible says that after this, that the Philistines went out into three divisions into the land and, and, and subdued the whole country. Israel's going into one of its darkest hours. And I'll just give you just a hint and then I'm through. I can't stand it. I've got to give you a hint. I've got to show you a little bit of light. There's going to come a day pretty soon when God's going to raise up a shepherd boy and he's going to advance upon the Philistine giant and he's not going to need a sharp spear nor a sharp sword. All he's going to have is ballistics. Ballistics are superior in warfare to the sharp sword any day. God's going to give them his means that's another thing Saul failed at. He wanted to do God's work, but he didn't want to do it God's way. And David not only did God's work, but he did it God's way. And he didn't need weaponry. In fact, the only thing that the Philistine's sharp sword was good for, in Goliath's case, was to have his head cut off by David when he was victorious. God can take the thing that scares you the most, the sharp sword, and could turn it around. And in his way and in his time, he'll do the miracle. He'll do the saving. He'll do the redeeming. He'll do the rescue. He'll do the restoring. He'll do the healing. And it'll be his work done his way. Can you just not trust in the Lord with all your heart? Lean not to your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. 